we have been on Sunday nights in 1 Corinthians, and uh, believe it or not, I'm going to take an entire chapter tonight, uh, chapter 8, so uh, find your Bible, <clears throat> and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, looking at the subject of how to deal with Christian liberty, and so that will be our topic again tonight, but... Uh, chapter 8. After you found that, stand with me and let's read it together. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus, by whom we are, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak, is defiled, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if, it, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble... I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, ask that you would help us again tonight to understand this rich passage that uh, is so practical in nature. And Lord, help us to be committed to uh, love one another to such a degree that we will determine not to put any stumbling blocks before uh, those who might be weak in the faith, that we would uh, do whatever is necessary and that we would yield our own rights for the sake of others. And Lord, we pray that tonight you would make this crystal clear in our minds, that we would know what we're to be about as your people, and Lord, that uh, we would have a desire to line up with the principles here of your word. So, Lord, bless again tonight. We love you. We worship you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
In this letter of 1 Corinthians, we have a series of questions being answered by the Apostle Paul. The Corinthian believers had written to Paul to ask him a number of questions that they were grappling with. And these are issues of life that they were wrestling with. These were very relevant topics in that day and time. And really what Paul is doing here is he's answering his mail. If you know what that is, snail mail, we don't know what that is anymore. But in chapter 7, he answered several questions related to marriage and singleness and divorce. And now in this 8th chapter, he says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Now let me ask you, how many of you here tonight have struggled with this issue? Let me see your hands. No, most of us don't have any problem with being offering sacrifices to idols. This is not a real hot topic of discussion for most of us today. Uh, very few of us have lost any sleep over this one. But I want to assure you, it was a very important question in that day and time. And it was an issue that no one could avoid in that particular culture. You could not go to a wedding, to a restaurant, or even a friend's house without being confronted with which side of the fence you were on in regard to this issue. You had to decide if you were going to eat this meat or not. John MacArthur says it was impossible for a believer who had any personal contact with Gentiles to avoid facing the question of eating idol sacrifices. Most social occasions, including weddings, involved pagan worship of some sort, and a great many of the festivities were held in temples. Those were the largest buildings. And idle food was always served. He said if a relative was getting married or a longtime friend was giving a banquet, a Christian had to make excuses for not attending, which he could not do indefinitely, or he had to eat the food that he knew had been part of an idol offering. Now, we really must understand the background for this issue, or we will totally miss the message of this passage of Scripture. In those days in Corinth, there were a number of pagan temples where sacrifices were constantly being made to false gods. And when the people of that day took their sacrifices, they took the very best that they had. Some of the meat was consumed. Some of it was given to the temple priests. But a lot of it ended up being taken to public markets to be sold. And the thing you need to understand here is that this was the very best meat available in that day. 
and it was often sold for less than anything else. It was like getting prime rib for 50 cents a pound. It was a pretty good deal. It was very tempting to buy this meat. And they were like us. They liked to eat. Now, as you can imagine, the Christians began taking sides on this issue. Some said, well, we need to be good stewards of God's money, and this is the best deal in town. Others thought that that was a great compromise, and still others thought that because this meat had been offered on pagan altars, that it had demons in it, and if you ate it, the demons would get into you. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I would guess that if we were to take a survey here tonight on how many of us think it was okay for them to eat that meat and how many of us think they should not have eaten that meat, we would probably get some differences of opinion. And someone might ask, what difference does it make? That was 2,000 years ago. What does it matter to us today? And my answer is it really does matter because even though we may not struggle with this particular issue, Paul's discussion of it reveals some biblical principles that are very helpful to us in determining what is right and what is wrong. This may not be a problem in our world today, but there are other issues just like it that we need guidance on. And this passage is very valuable in helping us know how to respond biblically. In fact, this passage is so critical because it gets into the important area of how we can know whether something is right or wrong when the Bible does not give us a clear command on it. These may be things such as whether a Christian should watch certain things on TV or whether Christians should even watch TV at all. Should a Christian play cards or dance or shop on Sunday? Is it right for Christian women to wear makeup? Is it right for Christian men to wear makeup? Just wanted to see if you were listening. Is it okay to play football on Sunday afternoon? Is there anything wrong with a Christian listening to rock music? Should a Christian get a tattoo? And on and on and on we could go. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some of these issues where there may be some scriptural guidance, but it may not be as clear as other things, and Christians tend to differ on biblical interpretations at times. For example... There are some who would take the prohibitions that the Bible gives for the Sabbath and transfer them to Sunday, the Lord's Day. 
So there are Christians who claim to be New Covenant believers, but they teach that we should do no work of any kind on Sunday. So they take the Sabbath regulations and shift it over to Sunday, the Lord's Day. Or some teach that there should be no form of entertainment at all on Sunday. And of course we know that the Sabbath was Saturday and that the commands for Sabbath keeping were given to the Jews under the Old Covenant and that has been abrogated, no longer applies to New Covenant believers. We also know from the book of Acts that the early Christians worshipped on the first day of the week, Sunday, not Saturday, in honor of the resurrection of Christ. But should Sunday be just like any other day of the week, other than the fact that we go to worship? Or should it be a day of rest, devoid of any shopping, recreation, etc.? We're not given clear guidance on this in Scripture, and devoted Christians may differ on this. On the other hand, I think there are some who would like to throw a number of things in here that they would consider gray areas that are really more clear in Scripture than they might realize. For example, some want to put the issue of alcoholic beverage consumption in this category. I don't believe it fits here. I believe that the Bible teaches against any consumption of alcohol. It says, do not, that's a command, look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. That's Proverbs 23:31. And I believe that clearly refers to wine that is fermented as opposed to unfermented grape juice. Now, preachers of previous generations clearly taught this, but it is not popular for preachers today because alcohol has become so socially acceptable. However, if you go on in that passage, it tells you exactly why you don't drink wine like that. It is because it is intoxicating. It's clear if you read it. And I believe the basic premise of Scripture is that you don't allow something to control you in a negative way. This would include alcohol or drugs or anything else that might have some sort of intoxicating effect. But having said that, I also know that there are committed Christians that differ with me on that. I'm giving you my position and how I understand the scripture, but I know there are others that see that issue differently. So in that sense, perhaps this passage provides some help here as well, even though we are given a command on this. Now, the heart of the matter of this chapter is this. How far does Christian liberty go 
in regard to behavior that is not specifically forbidden in Scripture. We're not talking about issues like adultery or fornication or stealing or murder or slander or anything else that God's Word declares as wrong. We're talking about the gray areas where it is not as clear. Now, the matter of Christian liberty is firmly established in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's freedom. Galatians 5.1 says, It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. James 2.12 says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. That is firmly established in Scripture. Christian liberty. But listen. Christian liberty is not unbridled license. We are free in Christ, but that does not mean we can do what we want. It is freedom from sin to do what we ought. That is Christian liberty. Now, when it comes to Christian liberty, historically there have been two extremes. First of all, there is the extreme of legalism. Those who fall into this extreme usually classify everything, either good or bad, based on their own convictions, whether the Bible says anything about it or not. Legalists tend to have an exhaustive list of do's and don'ts, and their idea of spirituality usually centers around avoiding the things on the don't list, no matter what their inner motives of their heart may be. My friend, listen, you can not drink and not smoke and not cuss and not chew and at the same time be just as godless as those who do. Refraining from doing those things is not biblical spirituality. Walking in the Spirit is true spirituality. And remember, the Pharisees were legalists to the T, but Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will never see the kingdom of God. So there is the extreme of legalism. But the other extreme is the extreme of license. These are those who say that anything is okay as long as it is not specifically condemned in Scripture. Now this was apparently the attitude of the Corinthians. They were trying to justify their actions on the basis that it was not forbidden in Scripture. But rather than giving them a command here, Paul wisely gives them some principles. And that is a good thing because it is impossible to cover every specific situation. 
But principles can cover every situation. Because he gives us principles here, we can take these principles and apply them to any situation that we might face in life. And what I believe Paul is doing in this chapter is to show us that both extremes are wrong. By raising a consideration they had totally ignored, that is, the effects of their behavior on others, especially those who are weaker in the faith. You see, the live and let live philosophy that our world is so enamored with today does not work in the church. We are too interconnected. We are the family of God. We are the body of Christ. And what each of us does always has an effect on the others. And so the main principle here is stated for us in verse 9. And as, in case you haven't guessed already, I'm kind of summarizing this chapter. But the principle stated in verse 9. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Listen, there are some things I don't do, not because they are necessarily wrong, but because if I did it, it might cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble. And before we exercise our Christian liberty in a given area that is not forbidden in Scripture, we should consider how it will affect other believers, especially those who are weak in the faith. That's the principle. Now, Paul states it in chapter 8, He illustrates it in chapter 9, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 13. And then he applies it in chapter 10, verse 14, all the way to chapter 11, verse 1. So we're going to be talking about this for quite a while. But in order to make his point, Paul gives us several aspects of it. And I think these represent some of the arguments that the Corinthians were using to try to justify their actions. The first one is the issue of knowledge. The issue of knowledge. And I don't think we have an outline. I didn't do an outline. So anyway, you'll have to follow the best you can. Verse 1 says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Stop right there. The word for knowledge here is a word that occurs 11 times in this chapter. He is emphasizing the fact that a Christian has all knowledge. But we know that just because a person becomes a Christian does not mean he knows everything about everything. For example, just because you get saved does not mean you know how to perform open-heart surgery, right? It's like the old joke about a man who had a cast removed, and he asked the doctor if he could now play the piano. The doctor said yes, and he replied, oh, great, I've always wanted to play the piano. That's not how it works, right? So what Paul is getting at here 
when he says we all have knowledge, I think goes back to the point he made in chapter 1 and verse 5, where he said, in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge. What is he saying? He's saying that every child of God has access to spiritual knowledge because the Spirit of Christ now dwells in every believer. The Bible says he is our knowledge. And when we need to know something, we go to his word and we ask the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts to know what we need to know. But we have access to his knowledge. You say, well, how does this refer to idols here? Well, think about it. Is there anything in the Bible that gives us knowledge concerning idols? I think so. The Bible says a lot about idols. In fact, look at verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is only there's one, there is no God but one. Here, Paul summarizes what the Bible teaches concerning idols. Basically, he says they are nothing. He says that though there may be idols in the world, there really is nothing to them. They are non-entities. For example, Psalm 115, 4-7 says this, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. They are what? Nothing. They're nothing. And so the knowledge that we have, is that idols are nothing and there's only one true God. So if we eat meat, sacrifice to idols, there really is nothing to it, right? Because idols are nothing. And this apparently is what some in Corinth were saying as a way of justifying going ahead and eating the meat. But Paul, in essence, says, wait a minute, Not so fast. Not so fast. He said, you'd better be careful about knowledge. Why? Because knowledge makes one arrogant. Spiritual knowledge is a wonderful thing. But spiritual knowledge alone can produce pride, and that can bring harm to others. Take a new believer and put a Bible in his hands, and one of two things will happen. He will either get a burning heart or a big head. One of the two. And it all depends on one thing, whether or not he has love. Knowledge that is not tempered with love can be very destructive in the Christian community. Look at verse 1 again. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. What Paul is really getting at here is that 
We can't make our decisions about right and wrong solely on the basis of what we know. We also have to consider the law of love. How is this action going to affect my brother or my sister? And if I really love my brother, then I'm going to make my decision on the basis of what is best for him. Notice verses 2 and 3. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. My friend, there is so much about God we yet are yet to know. There is so much of this book that we do not fully understand. If you think you know something, God says you don't have the understanding you ought to have. In fact, the more you dig into this book, the more you realize how little you know. And the further along you go in your understanding of the word, the more aware you will be that there is a vast ocean of truth in this book. And that when we come to it, it's like taking a little tiny teacup and dipping just a little water out of it. But again, Paul brings it back to the priority of love. He says, if you love God, you'll be known by him. Being known by God is much more important than anything we might know. That's the higher priority. We, We want to be loved by God. That's much greater than what we might know. So we need to be careful that our knowledge does not lead us astray. We need to always make sure that we bring love into our decisions. But Paul also addresses the issue of reality. In verses 5 and 6, he says, For even if there is so-called, there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. And because this is true, he goes on in verse 8 and says, But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat or the better if we eat. In other words, we're not more spiritual if we eat that meat. And we're not more spiritual if we don't eat it. So he's basically saying that this meat is neither moral or immoral. It is amoral. And just like money, it depends on what you do with it that makes it moral or immoral. You know, some of you grew up in a home where playing cards was evil. Shooting pool was of the devil. But we know that cards and pool tables are not evil in and of themselves. It is what you do with that that makes it evil. Or not. By the way, all of these kind of things that we mention here, all of this goes back to the time when there were only two institutions. There was the saloon and the church, and one got compared with the other. And so that's where most of these prohibitions come from. But notice verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge. 
But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. This verse tells us there are two kinds of believers, weak believers and strong believers. There are some who are strong in the faith, and there are others who are weak in the faith. When it comes to matters of right and wrong, you have to keep in mind the background of the person you are with. Not all people have knowledge that idols are nothing. Not all people have the knowledge that some things are amoral. There are those who, without this understanding of idols, can be greatly offended by eating this meat. Let's illustrate it. Let's say someone is raised in a home where there are idols everywhere. Everything their family does is preceded by bowing down to worship some statue. And every time a storm comes along, they go and they light candles and they pray to that statue. Or before they go on a trip, they uh, come in, they bow down and make sure they uh, pray to that idol. But then, let's say the person receives Christ. And comes to realize there's only one true God. And soon after this, a fellow Christian invites that new believer out to lunch lunch, and suggests that they meet at a certain restaurant. The new Christian says, oh, but I can't go in there. They serve meat that has been used in the same kind of idol worship that I have been delivered from. Or let's bring this to a more modern application. Suppose a person is an alcoholic. Their life and family has been a living nightmare. The alcoholic has nearly destroyed everything that is worth anything in his life. But that person comes to know Christ and their life is radically changed. And they are set free from that terrible bondage to alcoholism. Now, let's say that same fellow Christian invites them to lunch. The restaurant where he wants to go is flowing with liquor. That mature Christian might be able to sit there with all that alcohol around and not be bothered by it at all. But the new believer can be seriously hurt by being put back into that environment. Now, that's just one example. The important thing is not the specifics, but the principle. The bottom line is love. I may be free in Christ, but what is this action going to do to my brother or sister. Verse 9 says, but take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Romans 14:21 says, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. You say, preacher, 
Do you let other people dictate how you live? No, I let God dictate how I live. And God says these are the principles we're to live by. It is the law of love I must adhere to. Well, Paul goes on and says in verses 10 through 12, For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died, and thus by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. You know, there used to be in meatpacking companies something known as a Judas goat. And you might imagine what the Judas goat did. He would lead the sheep or the cattle blindly through the slaughtering chute. And the unsuspecting sheep would blindly follow that Judas goat, and the Judas goat would go right out the back, and all the rest of the cattle would be slaughtered. In the same way, we can act as a Judas goat on behalf of a weaker brother or sister in Christ. We can, in fact, lead them to slaughter. We can lead them to their own destruction. We can lead them into sin because of their weakness. And, of course, that is not a loving thing to do. If we really love them, we would never do that. We will give up our own freedoms for their sake. You know what's interesting? Paul says if you hurt your weaker brother, you're really hurting Christ himself. You're hurting Christ himself. We do damage to the body of Christ when we lead a weaker brother into sin. This is what we must consider. It's not always, is there a scripture? Is there a command? There's a principle to live by. Well, Paul wraps it all up in verse 13. He says, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I may not cause my brother to stumble. Paul says, I'll become a vegetarian if that's what it takes. I don't want to offend any brother or sister in Christ. Again, love is the key. Love leads us to yield our own freedom for the sake of a weaker brother. Well, we're just getting started in this principle, and we're going to have quite a bit more to deal with as we work our way through this. Let's pray together. Father, we pray tonight that you would help us to be governed by the law of love. And Lord, we uh, know that in the Christian life that we are interconnected. We are a part of your family. And so, Lord, we want to be sensitive to others around us who, who might not be strong in the faith. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to apply this principle in our lives. And Lord, help us to know and be wise when there are gray areas uh, Lord, we know there are not everything is, in Scripture is not always clear. 
But, Lord, we, we want to honor you and we want to please you and we want to be obedient to you. So, Lord, we pray you give us wisdom in that. And, Lord, that we might um, know your word, that we might apply your word to our daily living and help us especially to follow this principle that you've given to us here in this chapter. And we ask this in Christ's name.